1: Presented by
0: AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
2: You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. What's up, podcast humans? Hopefully you guys are doing great out there. I am doing well. I'm actually in Arizona, but that doesn't stop this podcast train from rolling on. First of all, thank you very much for all of the well wishes and all of the downloads and listens and spreading the word of the 500th episode with Milo from Descendants. It was uh, was awesome. Just (laughs) kind of stop down and celebrate for a moment. So thank you very much, For everybody who participated in that. And if you haven't listened to it, it's always there. It's available for whenever you want to consume that particular interview. Anyways, today I have another legend in my mind and in many other people's minds on the podcast. I have Sergio Vega from Quicksand. Also spent many many years in Deftones, um, and he recently departed over a uh, you know a contract issue. It's like these things happen from a professional business perspective when you're talking about a band like Deftones that is uh, you know an institution and a business. And uh, yeah, they just ultimately decided to part ways. We talk a little bit about that in the interview, but um, yeah, Sergio plays in Quicksand, <laughs> and Quicksand not only are legendary within the post-hardcore scene and have some unbelievable records out they have been putting out records the past couple of years that are incredible as well and so sergio is uh an interesting dude i spoke to him previously in another business capacity when i worked at uh, pita 2 -2, and uh yeah it was very cool but sergio sweetheart of a dude and uh, he's just lifer it's really really cool to be able to pick his brain so that's what we do first of all if you can do me a favor please Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or drop some star ratings on Spotify. All of those things help. Or just tell your friends because that is the best way that this podcast can get into other people's heads is by your friend telling you that this thing is worth their while. So I would appreciate that if you would do that. You can always email the show at 100 wordspodcastgmailcom at gmail.com. I have some pretty exciting news to share in the next like week or two about a potential Live podcast engagement. I'm incredibly excited about it. So that's all I'm gonna say. Not gonna tip my hand too much more, but uh yeah, I'll be very excited to talk about that. But let's uh let's take into Sergio, okay? Uh actually hold on. Let me let me talk about a show I just went to. I got to see a band called Slow Crush, which uh if you are not familiar with, just get get familiar (laughs) they're an incredible band i'm gonna have them on the podcast in the near future but um yeah got to see them and just got to go to a a lot of shows recently saw knocked loose uh, saw kubla like it's just it's great to be able to go to shows and feel like you're you're part of it again so anyways shout out to all those bands Great shows! Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for allowing me to watch your bands perform because uh, that's that's why we go to shows, right? So, anyways, here Sergio. We talk all about his life in quicksand, his time in Deftones, played in Absolution. Like <laughs> he's done a lot, and uh, Sergio is now doing a lot of uh, solo stuff as well, which uh, will be announced on I know his uh, Instagram, which is at Smurfed Out for those of you that are following along there. So um, yeah, let's talk to Sergio. I distinctly remember watching quicksand at I was probably 12 or 13 years old, but you were uh, touring with the offspring and oh, you were oh, pl- yeah. <laughs> playing the Brent event center here in Irvine, California. And it, it was interesting because at that time, like, you know, for the most part as a kid, like you just, you know, pay attention to like, Oh, there's the singer. There's like the lead guitarist. And like in general, I think bassists, don't get any love and, you know, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your butt, but you know, people maybe just don't pay attention to that instrument as much as others. But I remember you playing and I was just like, that dude's got a cool vibe. Like, I was like, I never really recognized the bassist before. Yeah, you. <laughs> and, um, and I'm sure like, maybe you are, I, I probably too close to kind of speak to this, but uh, you know, maybe you can speak in generalities of just the idea of, you know, where bassists exist in bands and how commonly, you know, you kind of are left to your own devices, making sure that everyone, obviously everyone's, you know, together and tight and what have you. Um, But do you notice kind of generically speaking is sort of like lack of love for bassists or am I just like (laughs) being hyperbolic here?
1: No, it's, it's there, that is a thing. Um, What's interesting for me, like uh, hopefully I can say this succinctly is, is that I don't, I didn't grow up with a rock background. Yep. And I grew up more with like uh with like freestyle and electronic music and and hip hop and my mother playing a lot of latin music and things that were bass forward. And um when I picked up the bass, you know, it was inspired by by reruns of television shows like Tom and Jerry and Partridge Family and um I had no idea that the bass wasn't a lead instrument. And um, I just (laughs) just picked it up and just started playing and uh, did a cover band in school. And when I got into the punk scene and hardcore scene, I started to, you know, I got a bass and kind of was like, tried to do bands and started, you know, just started writing immediately. But what I quickly noticed to your point was that what people were looking for, guitar players, were... Basis to kind of fill out their songs, and they kind of had songs, and oftentimes they didn't have songs. They had this kind of like loose idea of something, maybe some chords, and but to them they were the songwriters, and you were filling that out, and that kind of just was like that was a shock to me, right? And, um, and uh, it was really a shock to be honest. And I was just always like, so I kind of didn't really do those types of projects. I. I usually started bands or joined bands and came in writing right off the bat. And, but then noticing, you know, like when you're with quicksand and in projects, people don't perceive bassist in rock as being like a principal person, you know, or a compositional component. So that's something that I've, that, uh, that I've had to understand and know for um, quite some time. And, and my, you know, basically in a sense, get over, you know,
2: totally. Yeah. Well, and I really like how you articulated just that, that idea at the inception of it, of that, the, you know, bassist isn't, um, you know, like the, the quote unquote lead instrument as it were, just like you not understanding that concept initially. And then just being like, Oh, I, I see where this is kind of like yeah. going from here, you know, <laughs> like, oh, snap.
1: I was, yeah. like, I was like, isn't, you know, um, it was, a, it was a trip totally, well, but I, um, it also kind of inspired me in terms of like, uh, helped me really evolve as a writer and it helped me evolve as a, uh, ultimately becoming someone who could play multiple instruments and sing so that I can really protect the ideas of my core love, which is bass.
2: Right. Totally. Like being able to I- express yourself in other instruments and in other ways so that it's not just, you know, cause I mean, especially as you could probably testify within punk and hardcore bassists are usually just like, okay, you could sort of play guitar, but like you're a good hang. So we want you to be in the band. <laughs> it's like not yeah, like, necessarily the first. I mean,
1: there's a couple of, I always think of, there's a couple of archetypes. And there are two, especially. They're the ones who are, like you're saying, they're just kind of like holding it together and they're playing like root notes and they're kind of just there. And then you have on the other end, the ones who are super players who are trying to find their personality and expressing themselves in a song. And um, they are uh, really like playing a lot and doing a lot of fills and and they're using the song as a foundation to express themselves through it. By overplaying a lot and for me you know like with my musical influences initially uh the bass like let's say with reggae the bass is uh is a foundational musical instrument the parts are the parts have are the meat and potatoes but they're not they're not busy but they're they're essential and that was always something that i would draw from rather than most rock musicians
2: Right. Right. That makes sense. And we'll explore some of those ideas a little bit further, but you, uh, just focusing on you as a person, I know you were born and raised in the Bronx. Um, what was your, I guess, family structure like growing up in regards to brothers and sisters, mom and dad in the house? What did that look like?
1: Um, I had, um, when I was younger, I had one brother with my parents, my father and mother divorced when I was young and went up with a second brother later. And, um, growing up in the Bronx, my family were visual artists and with, uh, my mother having a lot of love for music and then transitioning into being, uh, an author and, uh, someone who put on concerts, she had a, she has an organization and she had one that she was at at the time, other ones over the years. So I kind of grew up with a lot of Latin music. Uh I have a, um, I have a cousin who uh coincidentally is named Chino Moreno as well, and he um got me into music and through him and watching reruns of television, you know, I kind of just thought music was really cool. My cousin I thought was the coolest, and when I was really young, and his friends were cool, and they were musicians, and that was like uh that was my youth, but my thing was primarily visual arts, so like I like to draw. I got into writing graffiti and painting on trains when I was really young, and uh, somehow pivoted over to music in my in my teens. You know, like my mid-teens. Mm-hmm. The rest is history. I just I just hit the ground running, trying to make bands and trying to write songs, and uh, was somewhat. I wasn't self-taught. I was in orchestra in school, but as far as like my education and writing and, and arranging, that was all just from experience.
2: Right. Right. And what sort of visual arts did your um, mother participate in? And was she like, uh, I presume, painting? But like, what was she, you know, yeah, they were with?
1: Painting. My my father was doing acrylics and oil painting. My mother was more like watercolors and acrylics. And then, but then I um, uh, got into got into doing like screen printing, and um, so that was kind of the vibe. When I was like really young, but then pivoted over into writing and and having this organization where she was putting on shows. So I was like uh, like around a lot of Latin musicians when I was really young.
2: Yeah, that's cool. Well, you're just experiencing all of these different ways that people creatively express themselves. But that was you know normal to you as opposed to people that maybe kind of reverse engineer that process.
1: Yeah, it was it was the it was the thing. Like what I had to work on over time was my day-to-day life. Like, you know, you got to like do dishes and do laundry and stuff. Right. Like the creative part was always like pushed.
2: Right. Yeah. It's like, Hey, this is the, uh, the normal life you got to take care of. And it's like, what, what? really? Like,
1: huh? <laughs> you know, those bills are not, yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> right.
1: It's like, Oh
2: yeah. Oh, I guess I got to do that at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of, you know, our, our armchair observation of you uh, from all the times that have, you know, either watched you perform or just uh, existed alongside of you. You've always seemed uh, you know, a very uh, introspective and thoughtful person and definitely not like the person that walks into a room and is like, hey, everybody pay attention to me. Um, you know, where uh, where would you put yourself on that spectrum? Like as far as maybe introvert or extrovert, like what were you, I guess, as a kid? And then how, did, was that something that, you know, you kind of grew into in regards to being more outgoing or vice versa. I think I was
1: in general, like a bit of both. If I had, if I was in a comfort zone, I was uh, outgoing, but I was easily taken out of a comfort zone. And then I was really reserved and, um, you know, finding, finding a balance of that over time, you know, it was something that was interesting because I don't know, like, what made, possessed me to think I wanted to get on the stage and play, but I really wanted to do that. And, you know, um, but in general, I don't need to be the center of attention or the life of the party. I feel like yeah, when you're putting out, you're not taking in. And I have, you know, I've developed over life the opportunity to, to do both where I get to perform and I get to just give. But even then, I'm aware of my surroundings and I appreciate the energy that's coming back. And if I'm chilling, you know, like I get to hang out and just kind of fall back and 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 observe all the coolness around me. And that's the kind of thing that keeps you fresh and keeps you keeps me inspired.
2: Sure. Yeah. It's seeing how other people can exist in the world that can definitely position yourself appropriately alongside of that.
1: And just get just pick it just pick it up, you know, like um, subconsciously. Like there's so much there's so much information and stimuli going around like whether it be in real life or be online or you know through friends conversations and through things and like you have so much of an opportunity to learn and and be inspired so i i like to take um i love listening and i and i like kind of hearing and and then i've worked hard on also i i was never i always wanted to give people space to reveal what they wanted to but i i learned over time that you know, asking questions about people's lives and situations are, um, are good and they want to know, they won't necessarily tell you, you know, Um, and, um, and giving of yourself and being transparent is also very good because it allows people to connect and know you.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it, it's funny because it's, I'm sure you've experienced this where it almost seems counterintuitive where the idea of sharing more of yourself, that could reflect back on you. Cause some people have that idea that it's just like, Oh, the more I keep to myself, like, you know, I can just eat around the edges and understand other people, but it's like, well, people don't necessarily want to share if they don't feel like it's some sort of reciprocal conversation.
1: Yeah. And it's something that it's something that I really learned in my relationship with my wife, the, the uh, value of putting my guard down and, and having unnecessary boundaries of, of like who I am and what I am. And 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 actually, projecting those same needs onto people by not asking them about themselves. You, I I, uh, I spent a lot of time not connecting because I didn't. I I had uh, I had it wrong, you know. But like that fueled me as a player because that was a chance to let everything go.
2: Sure, absolutely. And your trajectory in regards to, you know, school and kind of the, the life path that was uh, set before you, you know, did you find yourself caring about studies in school and kind of the next steps in regards to doing a career and that sort of stuff? I mean, I know that obviously punk and hardcore really, you know, swallowed you up, but was there um, any sense of that before that? No, I, I,
1: man, I am fortunate that life worked out the way that it did because I grew up. I wanted to be a baseball player. I was like, I didn't have a sports family that did that rec- that you need in order to become one. But I did have an artistic family, and when I got into music, I was better. I had a better foundation for that. And when I got into punk and hardcore, I literally was um, naive enough to think, "Yeah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this punk thing." I am not going to make a living. I am going but I'm going to be creative for the rest of my life. Uh, I see my mother is, uh, she has made a career for herself as, as an artist and, uh, and someone who does events and she seems happy and healthy. And I have no, I have no skill. I have no other plans and no knowledge of, of even like, I have no business mind. I have nothing. Just going to throw myself into this music thing. And, uh, thank goodness that, um, you know that the passion I had for it and the and the dedication I had for it aligned with with uh, good circumstances in the world that allowed for me to have a living and make a career as a musician. So yeah. I, I, I really really appreciate
2: it. Sure. Yeah. Well, especially as you uh, so succinctly put it, you have no other skills. <laughs>
1: <I'm just kidding. laughs> I didn't. I didn't. It's like I. I mean, what do I do? I can draw. I can cook. I can do these things about my life. It was set on a path of being a, some sort of creative entity from a very young age. And right. With no other. With no other thought, and I was like, wow, yeah, That's like insane. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, and, and I think too. I mean, once you start to experiment, especially within the you know DIY punk and hardcore scene. You feel that opens up the world so much to you that you're like, oh, I can like do anything and I can like go anywhere. Um, not even so much from a practical idea, but just the 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 transportative nature of music, where it's like, oh yeah, this is all I'm gonna focus on now. Like everything else will kind of fall into place after that.
3: <laughs> yeah, one hundred
2: percent. Band merch is the best thing ever. Rockabilia is the best thing ever. This promo code is the best thing ever because it gets you ten percent off your order. One hundred words or less. Like I said, 10% off, you will be able to dive into that website and purchase all the clothes for your friends, family, or yourself. And trust me, Rockabilia is the best place to do it because all officially licensed, they have over half a million items in stock ready to ship to you. I actually just recently got a really, really cool limited edition under oath t-shirt from them. And uh, it's it's awesome. They do all of these really cool, exclusive things. So I highly recommend you going to rockabilia.com, buying from them. A rad independent business run by people who really, really care about music. So thank you, Rockabilia, for your continued support. And again, one hundred words or less, ten percent off your order. Do it up. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. And so on that topic, um, you know, like you said, you were surrounded by music. Music was always an important part of your life. Um, and I know that clearly New York City was a, uh, you know, hotbed for a lot of things that were happening, especially within the more independent-minded stuff. But how how did, I guess, punk and hardcore get introduced to you? Was it, um, you know, just through friends at school? Was it just kind of existing on the street? What was the vibe?
1: No one at school. Like, I, I was up in the Bronx, and at that time, there wasn't really that. There was like... Um, the close there was nothing even close it was like there it was at the time where kind of house music it was like hip-hop there was like house music and then there was kind of like the electronic kind of like freestyle music that was happening there were people starting to get into like the precursor of like house music where they had kind of they started to look really kind of like a little bit more like exaggerated they started to have different kind of wilder haircuts and stuff and i thought that was really interesting and then it reminded me of um one time when my mother took me downtown we we're walking and i had seen these people with mohawks and jackets and stuff and i was like that is really interesting and um through uh, a conversation with my uh, cousin the one who had gotten the uh, cousin who got me into music you know he was like Oh, there's this guy downtown. He told me about punk and, like, and he had some, and I think, I'm pretty sure he was lying, but he was like, made up some guy, some mythical king of the punks who lived downtown. And I was like, really intrigued. And I made my way to a place called, uh, Danceteria and also CBGB's. And I started just going on my own and picking up what I could by myself. Like, my friends in the Bronx were not interested. And as I, uh, as I evolved and and my aesthetic started to change with what, you know, I was seeing, you know, that, I, that the place for me in the Bronx became less and less inviting, and I just wound up having to to make friends on my own downtown, and that's how I got into the punk scene, and that led over to the hardcore scene.
2: Right, that must have been a wild experience for you navigating that you know, essentially by yourself and having these two, you know, dance and CBT like the, those, you know, I mean, obviously the stuff of legends in regards to (laughs) both of those. Yeah.
1: yeah. And having no guide and just like, right. Realizing later that I was like taking the little money I had from my mother, leaving lunch money and stuff for like buying records. I found bleaker Bob somehow. And I was buying records, um, off of, like, things I saw painted on people's jackets. And, like, what I didn't know was that I was going to dance interior, walking right past the hardcore shows, going up to the goth floor and buying goth records with with my money, you know, thinking I was getting more into punk, but I was actually getting into bands like Alien, Sex Fiend, um, uh, Early Cure, uh, The Cult, and you know, back for episodes, and I'm like, I'm so punk, but I realized I was like, wow, I was pretty goth actually. <laughs>
2: yeah, right, and I, I really love that uh, description of it because as a young person, you are devoid of context and you are just operating off of instinct. You're just like, I like this, so I'm going to consume it. You're not, you don't care if it's a part of a scene.
1: Well, I thought I was trying to get myself into a scene. I guess I was coming out right. of a scene. That's true. That's I was coming true. Coming out of a world, and the world was slowly, incrementally rejecting me, because they were like, "I don't know what you're doing, but I don't like it." And I had like one friend who was kind of like, "Oh yeah, it's cool." He introduced me to the police, and I was like, "This is cool." You know, I remember seeing a, on a cable access seeing um, Twisted Sister, and I was like, "This is wild." <laughs> yeah so i just kind of saw these people who were like i was coming from a world where people were painting things and like writing graffiti and being a graffiti writer to seeing people more painting themselves and i thought that was you know that was just a trip to me and, oh sure you know so eventually i made my way downtown and, and made friends one at a time
2: that's very cool and you as you started to bring the subculture home and i know that you've expressed that your parents have were very permissive and excited about your um, you know your your creative pursuits were they ever you know especially from the aesthetic choices whether it was you know like bringing mohawks home and like oh this is what vegetarianism is and like this is what straight edge is like did they ever kind of you know look at you with a side eyes being like sergio what are you, what are
1: you doing man Oh well, yeah. I had to. I had to give a presentation to my mother. She was not into it at all. She was like, "I don't know what you're doing. This is because her thing was all like it was like Latin, you know." And, right. But she, you know, she was she's a professor, you know, and um, I had to just make a presentation and kind of make the correlation between the uh me belief system uh punk mm-hmm. and uh and the things that were important to her i was like these share values even though the aesthetics are different and then she got that so after i had made a proper presentation she she understood it
2: i i i'm I, sorry to interrupt but i just uh, the I, the idea of you sitting there in front of your mother doing like i mean obviously it wasn't powerpoint but just like the you know the intellect, intellect intellects. intellect yeah. i'm totally mispronouncing the name but just trying to intellectualize the idea of what this scene is, and trying to identify with her on that level is incredible.
1: Yeah, and I read, I remember reading discharge lyrics that were more based on, on you know, the echo socionomic structure of things, and just saying, hey, look, you guys, you're all on the same page. These are people coming from a different place with a different thing from a different country, different whole thing, but you're aligned, and you know, don't let, don't let the appearance trick you and then so with that you know she she became more accepted and even with my musical pursuits she didn't enjoy them at all and only recently admitted to me that she had no idea where i was going with this and and but kept her mouth shut as a you know i thought she was like with it but she was more like i was scared, and right when i was about to say something you you pulled it together and started making it your living <laughs> <laughs>
2: Right. Before, before it actually came down to the, uh, you know, sit down intervention, uh, Sergio, you need to yes. put the base in the closet for a little bit.
1: <laughs> wing. Get, yeah. I was, I, 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 that, that surprised me.
2: <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and again, I asked this earlier, but I, I don't, uh, think I drilled down on it with the idea of, of school. Like, you know, did you actually get okay grades? Like what was the, yeah. okay.
1: I made it, I made it through high school. I, I, um, but when i got into like punk i kind of went all in and it was like ah, forget the system and i kind of just like i kind of mailed it in at the end which impacted my my college you know career and then i got into college non matriculated but i was so into this punk thing that school was the system and i was like forget it which was baffling to my mother as a professor and my father who worked at that point for the board of ed, they were just kind of like, I don't know what this guy's doing.
2: Right. 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 And so as you started to, you know, become really immersed and like you said, collecting these friends within the scene and like-mindedness of it, um, Did you notice in regards to, I mean, I know New York city is definitely a melting pot of a lot of different cultures and races. Um, Was there, you know, like, did you make the observation of once you started to go to shows like, Oh, I am, you know, one of the only, you know, uh, Hispanics, Latin people here at the show. Like, it's just a bunch of, you know, white dudes jumping on each other. Or was that even a thought process that entered your brain at that point?
1: No, the cool thing about downtown at that time was that that was not the case. What it was was that it was a real melting pot of people from varying parts of the city that had similar stories to me. And they were all either, you know, maybe some of them, since we're all younger, some of them would be like, maybe they were a year before me or coming year after, but they all had a similar story of, of being attracted to this other thing that didn't fit, um, the aesthetic of their family or their background or their friends and and being compelled to find a place where they could actually be accepted and and they were so there were people from all walks of life and and all different kinds of cultures that were just congregating and finding places like cbs and danzeteria it wasn't it wasn't um a white thing you know it was like a it was a an aesthetic and um thing about like a belief system or just kind of not fitting in or kind of something, you know, Like there was something that was going on that compelled people to express themselves in this way and find this area.
2: Right. No, that's so, really cool. And it, yeah, especially, my group,
1: was, my group was a hodgepodge of people from all kinds of things and like all different economic uh, situations, you know, some were well off, some were just moderate, some were poor. And, it, but we all had this one thing.
2: That's really cool. And uh, I know, like, I know you played obviously in Absolution and that was probably your first quote unquote serious band from that perspective. Uh, Or was there something, I I presume you played in bands uh, prior to that, but maybe not as uh, serious and actually like recording and stuff like that. Um, Uh Was there, there no, it's okay. Was there experience prior to Absolution with uh, bands, I presume?
1: Absolution was, um, I guess at the time, like I had, a couple of bands prior to that but everything at that age was super short-lived mm-hmm. so i had and they kind of involved people that were in other bands and or whatever so i had a band called trauma with some guys from nausea it lasted like a few months enough to make a cassette play a couple of shows i had a band called irate with with uh with the the singer from straight ahead and and this guy jerry williams on guitar who um was responsible for recording a lot of like things like the Roar cassette and, and early Cro-Mags and Antidote, but everything was super short lived. And then I had a band called Collapse that, that wound up on a couple of compilations and I wound up taking over for the bassist in Absolution, which was like my first situation of joining something that had songs in it ex- that already existed. Right. And, um, that uh, that I came in at the tail end of it, and so it, it broke out, and then I kind of, which just had nothing for almost a year, and and Quicksand happened.
2: Right, right. And uh, as you started to you know play shows and, and do that with Absolution more in per- in particular, were you? I guess always comfortable on stage or was that something that you had to kind of work yourself up to um, you know, as you started to progress through playing in uh, different bands?
1: I was comfortable because I didn't think of it as like performing for uh, an audience as much as like, I'm part of a community okay. and I'm a scene and like, you know, there was very little difference between being in the crowd and being in the, you know, being on stage, like half the crowd spent half the time on the stage half the people in the audience who were kind of like dancing and, and going off in the pit were like more charismatic than some of the bands playing. So it was like everybody right. was performing. I didn't feel like, a, like I was, I didn't feel that. Later with Quicksand I started getting nervous because it felt like it was a different dynamic. Even though it was still similar, but like once we started playing shows and I was like, oh my goodness, this is different. And I had to work through that.
2: Right, right. And w- w- with the, uh, idea that you started to, um, you know, b- collaborate with more people, I mean, especially once quicksand came into play and that was, you know, being built from the ground up. Uh, and like you said, that was, you know, a different vibe in regards to like, once you started to play shows, I was like, wow, there's like, you know, five, 600 people here. This is crazy. Um, When do you feel, I guess in particular with Quicksand, like when did it become, for lack of a better term, like real, you know, where you felt like it doesn't even necessarily need to be like this big show you played or like, you know, when do you sign to, you know, Polydor Island or whatever? Um, Is there a moment where you felt like, you know, you were on kind of the right track, so to speak?
1: I think immediately because it was interesting at the time from coming from a different sub, sub sect. And the other guys, you know, like not having the straight edge background and then playing with Walter and Tom and Alan were doing beyond and they were bringing something different. And Walter was already like, you know, more accomplished in terms of he had toured already. He was, he was kind of already international. And I felt like, oh, this is a cool kind of meeting of different aspects of this world. And it felt you know, have, uh, with those guys having the connections to Revelation Records and making an EP pretty quickly, I was like, "Wow, this is a—it's uh, on, <laughs> it's on." I felt like, "Man, I made a record, I made it." Right. I, just, I didn't, you know, I was like, "This is it. This is what this is what it is. This is great." And I, that was amazing. Right. Was really amazing. So I'm always thankful for uh, being introduced to those guys by a mutual friend named uh, Gavin Van Black, who is. In Absolution and and Burn after that, yep, he
2: connected us. That's very cool. And as you started to become more immersed in general with the hardcore punk scene, with the uh, you know all these different ideas from either you know political stripes and like opening up people's eyes to you know maybe different uh, lines of thinking, what uh, attracted you towards um, you know those particular trains of thoughts, or even if it's just like something as you started to attend shows, like the visceral nature of it, what, what, what kind of brought you in?
1: I think, um, for like the different aspects that I, that I got introduced to through it. Um, veganism was easy because I, I really just didn't like eating meat and I didn't know that you had an option. So I, I have probably one of the easiest kind of like paths to veganism. I just, once I learned, from the band Crass, that it was a diet. I was like, I'm on it. And, uh, I just didn't enjoy it. And, um, as far as like politics and, um, I was able to make a quick connection between things that were important, you know, my mother's events and, and the idea of like culture and community and family and see that this was operating on the same wavelength. And as far as aesthetics, it was, kind of, like, just made sense. It made sense, like, um, coming from, like, graffiti and coming from uh, having parents who were into visual arts, seeing the idea of expressing yourself in that way was something that was really cool. Totally. And, and uh, so having these things, and I felt like this was self-contained. Like, I felt like this is something that's affirming itself, and and it's really, really interesting. You know, like um I felt like I was it was checking all the boxes. Yeah. You know, and right it was it was a I just I felt so fulfilled and I felt like I had arrived. So like in doing that, even though with no prospects of making a living, I felt like I was I was I had made it.
2: Right. <laughs> and uh I mean I'm sure as you were, you know, building quicksand and, and starting to you know be more active with that i'm sure you were just kind of you know working random jobs that revolved around the idea of like well i may have to leave for a couple of weeks because i have to go out and tour uh what what were the hustles that you were getting into around that time
1: um all health food stores i just worked in health food stores because that was like that was the that was the way you know everyone had a job at one particular health food store but i had a job at a different one uh, but everyone worked at a place called Prana, and they had a restaurant called Ahimsa. And um, the guy who ran it, I know we were, all these kids were working there, and I know that he knew they were giving away the farm. And he just allowed it to happen. He just let these, he just was like, I can say with a high degree of certainty, he was just there to support these kids who were all kind of just seemed just like outcasts. And Allow them to have a place to work and allow them to have a place to have a vegan diet that they couldn't afford by um, allowing the cashiers who were kids to give them to check out the food at a steep discount. <laughs> and so cool. That was a thing. I know it. There's no way. <laughs> right. There's no way that. And we would do the same at like Ahimsa. Our friends would work there, you know. It's like, oh, we got Ray from Youth Today is working in the kitchen, and you'd go down the corner and you'd see the bad brains there, and the back window would open and a little, you know, bag of food would come out. You know, like nobody really had money. And this, and I can, with a high degree of certainty, say that he helped support um, a belief system and a way of being um, on his dime. Yeah.
2: You know? That well, that's incredible to hear because I do think that they're, I mean, in the same way that you know, like Kinkos, once people started to you know do zines and you know print out their their demo covers and stuff like that, the amount of bands that Kinkos has unknowingly funded, which is mm-hmm. obviously a completely different story than what you're articulating, but no, it's
1: just that not exactly the same. Is it they and you know someone there knows and someone there's turning a blind eye, right? It's exactly. Totally.
2: Yeah, totally they're just like all right here's the uh you know you go in at two in the morning here's the uh, the copy card and then go ahead run you know 100 copies mm-hmm. of your zine i'm not going to tell anybody mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and,
1: and, and you think about like i think that someone like that who notices and sees it goes you know what these people are these are kids with limited means trying to do good things
2: totally and it, honestly like in what you're articulating about the uh, you know the health food store like th- that is true community service in a way that could never be Uh, quantify beyond the fact that like you said all of these people within this scene benefited from that and were able to ethically pursue what they were interested in Mm -hmm. because of that
1: yeah there's no way there's no way that everyone could have afforded to maintain a vegan diet you know without that help
2: totally and just in the same way that like when you look at you know hari krishnas and the vegetarian diets and the free food that they would be giving out it's like that's exactly the same idea where it's just like oh yeah like free food and it it happens Mm -hmm. to be vegetarian
1: (laughs) oh yeah a lot of kids a lot of kids uh did that too which which um definitely uh led to uh the krishna um facet of the hardcore and punk scene totally yeah, because it spoke to it spoke to there was a, it spoke to some of the commonalities between the two worlds.
2: Absolutely, it's pulling those things together. Terror has a new full length that is coming out on May sixth. Alert, alert! The beautiful people at Pure Noise Records are releasing Pain into Power. It comes out on May sixth. You can easily pre-order it by going to purenoise.net, and it is their eighth studio album, which the last one came out in 2018. But you know that was a whole different world back then. The amazing thing about Terror is not only are they one of the best hardcore bands around, but they are actually teaming up with their founding guitarist Todd Jones, you know, from Nails, and obviously was in the band towards the beginning. And they they joined up with him. He handled a lot of production work, a lot of songwriting stuff. And it was it's it's amazing. <laughs> Just listen to a snippet of this song. It's called Pain into Power, and you will be able to hear. What is cooking in the terror camp? No no you.
3: Cool.
2: There you go. I mean, terror is such a mainstay within our scene, and uh, they still kill it, putting out so much great music. And obviously, if you get a chance to catch them live and you've never seen them, oh my gosh, your life will change. They definitely are, in my opinion, a gateway hardcore band. Like, you can bring a friend to a show that has never heard hardcore before and watch Terror, and they'll be like, oh my gosh, this is unreal. So, again, the record is called Painted to Power. It is out on May 6th. Go to purenoise.net. You can pre-order it, pre-save it. Can't wait for this thing to come out. I've heard it all. It is spectacular. So, enjoy.
3: you started to tour more
2: actively with quicksand and, you know, enter these business relationships with managers and labels and stuff like that. How was your, uh, I guess, perception or interaction with the music business side of things? Was it something that you kind of, you know, knew to be a necessary evil to kind of keep the band moving? Was it something you enjoyed participating in? Where was your vibe there?
1: I think it was interesting in that everything happened incrementally, although quickly so it felt like a natural progression and it and it started to there was a little bit of tension internally that's if we wanted to make that step especially where we came from but ultimately there was the the overall agreement that um we could do it our way to a certain extent and um that it was i never looked at it as as a necessary evil i just looked at it as a logical progression and um it spoke to certain needs and gave us certain resources to to kind of like be better and have and have gear like when we were traveling and go on tour especially through parts of the country where there's um where the expenses are different uh, a lot of bands had a lot better gear than us they had a lot better vehicles and it was an opportunity to say, "Oh wow, we can actually get like some, we can actually get some proper proper gear and some some things in travel." Like our van had plexiglass windows that were constantly getting pushed in, and our seats weren't attached to the floor. And um, you know, now we can actually ride in something that is safe, and we can have some gear that's all ours, and and actually have. Uh, instruments that can get maintained so that was that was um i didn't feel like we had to sacrifice our ourselves and our way of being to to have us
2: right no that's cool and uh i know that there were um the machine that uh you guys started to go on in regards to the way that bands had to operate as far as touring you know 300 days out of the year and you guys having to go, uh, you know, on these tours that maybe aesthetically or sonically didn't make that much sense, um, you know, led to the, the band obviously dissolving. Um, how do you feel, um, you know, as you reflect on the, when you guys did break up, Uh, do you feel like that was, you know, I guess the right time (laughs) to do that? Or do you feel like it could have gone on a little longer for you personally? Where was your head at as the things kind of started to, you know, dissolve?
1: I think my head was in the wrong place. I think that, um, um, we had burnout Mm -hmm. and we were trying to, you know, like we were definitely not on the same page. We're just playing way too much. And, and just had a bit of burnout and tried to, you know, internally we weren't really in agreement of, of uh, like even discussing how to, what to do next. And, um, and then ultimately, you know, like at that time, you know, it just disbanded. And if I, if I would have been, if I would have had the, the perspective that i had now it would have been like yeah we could just we can just take a couple years off even at this point we can do whatever you know but that wasn't uh, i was very binary at that time it was like we do it or we don't do it right. <laughs> everyone was like i need to know what the tomorrow is and i was like i would never i would never ever um look at things that that black and white and but you know although i think that that was unfortunate and didn't need to be what I can say is, is that it allowed us to do things independently that, and probably would have happened anyways, but we, we were able to do things independently that gave us even more appreciation for each other. And when the stars aligned to reform, it was done with, um, an understanding that like, at least for myself, I can, you know, took, took, um, things like chemistry for granted. I was like, you hey, just get people together. I, I really appreciated the chemistry that I have with everybody and appreciated the, what we do and how we sound. And, and I could see how much it, it shaped me and changed me and influenced the things that I, that I did, you know, and I could see that in Walter with the things he was doing after and the things that Alan did and the things that Tom did, we all kind of like evolved. So when it came back together at, you know, I could say there was so much more of an appreciation for it and each other.
2: Sure. It was like, yeah, I'm sure in some respects it was like, you know, putting on a old pair of slippers where I was like, oh, guys, this feels nice. Remember how cool this was?
1: Yeah, but it's weird because it's like the slippers went, be, were newer and, and more fancy. Like, it, right. felt like. <laughs> it felt like it went from what felt like an old pair of slippers that you felt you can replace anywhere. And then you realize that these are like some sort of one-of-one boutique designer slippers that no one else can ever have except for the, those four people or, you know, yeah. us, us who comprise the band. That was the thing it couldn't, it doesn't, you don't get those slippers anywhere else. You can get cool slippers and even great slippers, but these are one of ones.
2: Total, no, I, I love that. <laughs> um, and I know when uh, stepping onto the uh, Deftones platform and, you know, they brought you in uh, to a very, you know, evolved and already pretty fast moving vehicle, so to speak. And it it seems like you blended in very, very well. Was it, um, was it, I guess, shocking for you to acclimate to certain things? What were surprising to you? Um, you know, seeing like the level that the band was at, because clearly that was, um, you know, a a level much larger than you had ever previously experienced. Um, what was surprising for you uh, on that initial journey?
1: Um well, it was interesting because, like, the precursor to that was was uh, meeting them on the first Warp Tour mm-hmm. and um, seeing that there was a sort of commonality. Not that they, they were not from our scene, but they, they revered uh, – I was sold on the fact that they loved the Bad Brands. Someone told me they loved the Bad Brands. So go see them. Went to go see them on the Warp Tour, you know, because, you know, they were on a leg – of the tour that you know the first one that we were on and i was like wow they're bringing the catharticism and the energy you know like especially you know seeing how chi was going off and just seeing the band in general um it's like they're bringing what we bring without the uh without the context of being part of the scene and they also they also see the greatness of the pat brain so i must meet these guys and i went and met them and you know um kind of connected with Chi a little bit, got to connect with the other guys a bit. And, you know, that was it. Uh, In 99, you know, I get uh, a call uh, to fill in for Chi, you know, and because uh, he had to go home from tour, he hurt himself. And it was cool because I had already vibed with him and I kind of knew that at that point we had a mutual thing for each other's playing. He had started playing Fender basses because he had seen me kick one across the stage and, and, and he was like, wow, if I can handle him, I can, I want to, I want that. And so we had this kind of thing, even though I didn't get to know him well. And, um, so, you know, I kind of went in and filled in on that tour and they were starting you know, to come up. So they were already somewhere, you know, and, um, in that tour there was like, it was a really good chemistry. And at some point, she was like, "Hey, if we asked you to join, would you join?" And I was like, "No, you know, like, she's the guy. You know, she's already my boy, and they're all my friends." And I didn't confuse the excitement of of John with with um, with the need to replace Somebody who's already amazing, you know. Right. And then uh, that happened. You know, just moved on. And then and then you have the tragedy of uh, two thousand and nine, where you know, she got into his accident. And that was terrible. And I'm catching them at a real crossroads, you know, where they have your roast that's not quite finished. And, you know, I was kind of like, when I was around, it kind of came to my attention that there wasn't a lot of excitement about it and the label wasn't keen on releasing it. It was probably maybe considering parting ways with the band. And uh, Nick Rascalinics came in and, uh, my understanding was that they were going to, instead of giving them some severance money, that they can use that money to make what became Diamond Eyes. So having already the momentum of a friendship, and having um, the catharticism of of the, just the what had happened to Chi and what was going on with the band in general, and having someone like Nick to really hone that, you know, created something that was super special. So like by the time we took a stage, you know, like we'd have been around each other intensely for a while. And I just felt like, and I've always felt like, yeah, I'm, I'm here putting my best foot forward in a situation for friends. And they're giving, you know, they wanted me, you know, when I came in, they were like, Hey, we just want what you are, what you're doing, what you're bringing that, what that stuff you brought to quicksand bring to us. So I came in right off the bat, like writing and collaborating and, um, Having that sense of family and community that I came up in.
2: Yeah, that's and, really. I, I appreciate that picture yeah. that you painted because I do think that it, because you had this, not only this common experience, but common language to be able to work from, it was like, I mean, I remember the announcement of like, oh, yeah, Sergio is going to, you know, officially join the Deftones. It's just like, oh, yeah, of course he is. Like, <laughs> it just yeah. makes total sense. But at the same <laughs> time, it's yeah. like, yeah, you need to build to it.
1: But for some people that, people who knew my history and our history it it made sense and there was an overwhelming you know part of their um supporters that had never heard of quicksand, of you know with good reason and didn't know who i was so you know that was a that was a whole other thing to contend with but by the time we took the stage what was cool was like since we had been around each other playing we had this thing we had made um a record and it felt like we were in a rehearsal space, but just the one. But the walls got lifted because it was like the same setup that we had been, you know, that we had for all this time, and um, now we're just p- presenting it in front of people. And that, it just felt nice. I, I just felt like I didn't feel the pressure of taking someone's place. I felt the the energy and the excitement of being present and putting myself, you know, out and forward for for people. That I hold dear, you know, and people that are friends, and and appreciate again coming from always appreciating, you know, situations and, and musical pursuits and community and family. That was that was always my lens.
2: Totally, that's really cool. And. You've always been creating music, um, you know, through the duration of you playing in band, like active touring bands, and you've always expressed yourself in a lot of different ways when it comes to music, which kind of echoes back to not only your upbringing but then uh, just the different styles that you have probably gotten into through other people. Um, where where do you kind of place that need to create um, while you're also you know playing in a quote unquote active full time touring band?
1: Um, well, with doing like like my time in Deftones before Quicksand reformed, you know, was like it was cool because it was it was like an opportunity to to collaborate and write and 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 ride this wave and have this energy with people who are, are really talented and really open to collabing and creating. And and then during that time, you know, uh, Quicksand reforms and. Um, that became exciting because, you know, there was the momentum of, of, of seeing things work out well with Deftones after everything the band had been through. And seeing that work well for quicksand, all that stuff just makes me more inspired and excited to do more and also stay in shape for, for the things that need to be done. So like if I would come home, then I'd want to do things just to stay in, the, in sharp for writing. Like, I felt like if I let myself get cold, then anxiety would creep in and I'd be concerned about like being good enough or like being up to speed to, to, you know, I didn't want to waste people's time. I don't want to waste my time by not being up to speed. So when I was home, I would play a lot and write and keep doing things just so that, um, when it came time that I was just always in the flow.
2: Right. Like you, you would be ready once whatever it is that came up, came up.
3: Yeah,
1: and yeah. I think that, so. I kind of like when I had a, one perspective as uh, when I was really young of like, oh, you're in your band and you do your thing and you shouldn't be doing other things and you know whatever. I was like, well, that just leaves a cold, and uh, that's not going to work.
2: Right, absolutely. I realized
1: the opposite to be true. You know, there was there there was always going to be the thing of time management, always going to be the the idea that you know you sacrifice downtime. But, like, if you're doing something you love, like, that's what I'd be doing, anyways, right?
2: So, sure, totally. And a few last notes I wanted to hit Uh, with touring. uh, I know that, I mean, you have experienced your wide variety of shows from the smallest to the largest, and different experiences from, you know, van life, bus life, and everything in between how has your relationship with touring uh, evolved? Like I presume a part of you obviously still enjoys it, but you know, has there been moments where it has felt more, uh, the, the, I guess the least enjoyable part of playing in a band?
1: Um, I think the only time it became difficult for me a little bit over time was, was dealing with the kind of like the, um, the situation like towards uh, like with Deftones and, and kind of that, you know, I spoke about in the thing of like wanting to really be in the band after that time, and being kind of in the band core as a core writer and a core person contributor on one end, but on tour, you know, it's when it kind of comes clear, you're not really in the band, sure. and that started to affect me, you know, um, start to affect me, um, kind of like mentally and 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 my sense of something. It was something that after having a life of Always being a part of something and always contributing and always being there and coming into something with the understanding that, you know, the intent was to, was to, you know, be, uh, come a full fledged member in some way. And have that not occur started to really, uh, become problematic for me in terms of, uh, just like my, my well being and feeling connected on tour, which was a first for me. And that started to really impact me you know sure and yeah so it became something that you know that like i would try to always address and be like hey you know, um this is the way we're supposed to be this what should be happening at this point as ex- as explained you know but like and there was there wasn't really the the um willingness to kind of like come together on that end
2: sure totally so
1: that became tough
2: yep um with the, uh, I know that especially more so probably with quicksand, a lot of stuff was, um, you know, kind of thrown in your guys' direction in regards to either, you know, tours and like sort of outside of the box, uh, experiences for you guys, whether it was, um, you know, doing this uh, one-off radio show or whatever and like, you know, probably still happens to you guys. Uh, I always like to ask this question cause I find it, uh, interesting, uh, from a, um, you know, just a business perspective, I'm sure like the, the type of a uh, syncs that you've been approached where it's like, Oh, let's use your commercial for, you know, a uh, German BMW commercial or whatever the case may Ooh. be. <laughs> Do you have any random stories that kind of stick out in your head as far as like either something that came to fruition or something that did not come to fruition because, um, you know, for reasons a, B and C.
1: No, you know, quicksand wound up in empire records, wound up in a couple of things that were really cool. And, uh, more so with Deptones, you know, we would get we would get proposals and say, "Hey, this song we want to use this song for this, want to use uh, this song for that," and uh, that was always something that was presented to us. And usually it would be something kind of cool and something they were like, "Yeah, of course, you know."
2: That's so that was, yeah. That was always breezy. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. Do you ever, do you ever remember one that was, uh, so, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, like lucrative, but then also ma- gave you pause. Cause you're like, that doesn't feel right. Like we can't do that.
1: No. Cause it, you know, I think the thing with a lot of licensing is that they're not as lucrative as one would think, you know, they're just kind of like more like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a licensing with like, um, you know for them it's like a one-time fee i mean i don't know how it works i forget how it works on the back end sure but i've seen like um an instrumental chop up of of the song tempest you know uh wind up in one of the fast and furious movies you know that, that was pretty cool right
2: <laughs> that's i did not know that happened that is very cool mm-hmm. <laughs> um and the like we were actually talking about off mic but the um you know veganism has been a very important part of your life and it's something that you know you actively speak about and share to anybody that is interested in that um what's kept you i guess connected to that because i know how you were introduced to that but uh what keeps you um i guess you know engaged with that uh as time has evolved
1: well again like fortunately like when i was younger my grandfather used to cook for the family and like when let's say he made chicken i would kind of see it and i'd be like it would just kind of be off-putting i was like i see bones and veins and it was just like never sat right with me um i did have no problem however eating cold cuts and stuff so i was like all right as long as there's this disconnect i could do it but um again learning uh, through crass that there was this diet I did it and I never felt like I was sacrificing anything. And if anything, some of the things like cold cuts and some of the things that I, that I enjoyed as uh, a meat eater became available, you know, uh, in plant-based form. And so it's just, it's just been, it just keeps getting easier. Totally. And it just keeps getting easier. And like seeing some of the benefits, you know, like where, whereas like, It wasn't a health thing, but seeing like the some of the ancillary benefits of like how my health has been impacted by at least when I eat well, because again, just being vegan itself is not is not (laughs) healthy, right? But like seeing that it has an impact, and you know, my mother became primarily vegan, mostly vegetarian, but like how that impacted her heart health, and in in regards to to the the rest of her family and the rest of our family on her side, I was like, yeah, these things. These things are they they have they bring some benefit if you if you're doing it right, but mainly for me it's never been a sacrifice. It's always been pretty easy. So I it's hard for me to preach to people on how to do it because (laughs) it was never a problem.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the last slash maybe most important question is the fact that uh, what is the best quicksand song in your opinion and why is it shovel? (laughs)
1: Um, honestly it's like every time i get asked that it's like you you get asked to choose a favorite child of course of course and you know everyone has a favorite child but they they kind of they kind of switch depending on the day or whatever those kids happen to be in their lives and what they're doing. So
2: totally, totally, yeah. yeah. I, I I had to I had to front load the question yeah. because yeah, sho, sho, shovel is just I mean like that. It, it's funny because like every time I I you know trip across that song and listen to it, I just like I'm I'm like I I just love the fact that it appears on Norm's comp and then that that's it and then that's that's all you're gonna get. It's so cool. It's, but anyways.
1: yeah, it's funny too because I think that when we talk about that song in retrospect, you know Alan. It's one of Alan's favorite songs too. It's like, um, and I love playing it. We all love it, and um, it's one of those things where if we have the perspective we had now, then it would have been on on our album, right? Yeah, you know, I think uh, at the time it was something that that maybe like it felt like too accessible. <laughs>
2: Right. It's like, yeah, this is too straightforward and too like verse chorusy or whatever. Yeah, we
1: don't want to do that unless a chorus. No, <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's incredible that that was, that, that could have been part of the thought process of not including it. Um, yeah, you know, it's
1: just, yeah. And, and a lot of times there's things, and it happens often. Sometimes uh, a song that's really good, you know, and when you're making a sequence, or even doing a set list, you know, but a sequence lives forever, and Sometimes something good or, or that is even great. Doesn't, you can't find a place for it to sit.
2: True. You like know, the sports. sequencing of it. Right. Yeah, no, I totally get what you're saying.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I've had that with, with the as well, where it's like, Oh, this is a solid song, but where does it sit? And it's throwing off everything. So, and I know that happens with movies. Things don't make, you know, things get left on the editing room floor because you have to have an overarching, uh, perspective in order to bring it home if you get too caught up on like the micro you can mess up the macro
2: that's a that is a that's a true true artist speak my friend and i love it
1: (laughs) (laughs) more like producer talk that's kind of something you learn later when you're you're just like i just want more bass you know everyone's like i want more of my instrument later you realize that maybe there's something better than just just turning yourself up
2: Wow, I think that's uh that's like better advice than most people could uh, you know, come up with in um, you know, 4 hours of conversation. <laughs> well, Sergio, thank you so much for letting me walk you through your life and I I really appreciate uh, all of the music you've contributed and then also being a thoughtful, caring human being. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for your time. Very cool of Sergio to hang out with us on this podcast and share all of his stories and uh, musical influences and all the other good stuff that we uncover. So thank you very much to Sergio. Thank you very much to Tim, his publicist, for hooking this up. I very much appreciate that. I'm actually releasing a bonus episode of the podcast tomorrow. So uh, pay attention to it. It is with uh, Andrew Cannon, who is from Santa Cruz Skateboards, and he also plays in a band called Worship. And uh, we talk we talk about DNA, which is uh, it's kind of random, but uh, trust me, it makes sense once you hear our conversation, but, uh, yeah, bonus episode coming tomorrow and, um, yeah. And then I'll tell you, uh, you know, what's happening after that, uh, whenever you decide to uh, tune into the podcast after that, <laughs> basically, I just don't want to reveal anything more than the, the podcast that's dropping tomorrow. So anyways, until then, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by better help.